We do want to hear from you. And uh, there are some of us here that think every time you talk to us, you're trying to, you're mad at us. You're honking at us because you're, and that's not who you are. We know you want to point those things out and help us to become uh, the people you want us to be, but we know that's not who you are. You don't just honk at us just to yell at us. Because um, sometimes, God, you're getting our attention because you want us to know how much you love us. You want to speak or sing joy into our lives. And so would you help us just have a uh, wisdom this week? I pray that we would each of us individually hear you in some new way this week and have the wisdom to know what you're trying to say to us. As we look into your word this morning, um, our prayer is the same. Would you help us to hear you and then have the wisdom to understand what you're saying and then have the courage and grace to respond to you in the way that will lead us to become the kind of men and women we've always dreamed we could be, and that is full of your life, full of your joy, full of your energy inside of us. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. I have uh, a homework assignment I did over 20 years ago in a class called OT711, Poetry and Post-Exilic History. Sounds exciting, all right? Uh, Old Testament class when I was in seminary. The syllabus for the class was Dr. McGarry. His nickname among some of the students was Mad Dog McGarry. Very intense guy. Syllabus was the class for the class 18 pages long, all right? Right away you're thinking, come on. 18 pages. Come on. All right. But then one of the assignments, we had a number of assignments. This was assignment study guide number four, on which I got 49 out of 50, by the way. Um, You're thinking, why did he save these things? I don't know. I have no idea. Um, But this is this is one of these uh, assignments. And we had four of these that, frankly, I thought was a little bit over the top. Like, come on. I mean, this this would take four, five, six hours to do. It's like questions where you had to write things in Hebrew, break apart these Hebrew words, and it was just kind of time-consuming. And I didn't know if I had the time to do that because it would, it would wear me out, and I want to be energized so I can't do things um, that would wear me out. So my first reaction was complaining, come on. And everybody in the class was that way, come on, come on. Second reaction was, and I'd already done three of these. So this one was coming in December. It was before Christmas. I remember thinking to myself, I don't have the energy to finish this. So I cheated. And you're thinking, you're in seminary preparing to be a pastor and you cheated? Yes, I did. <laughs> All right. And the thing was, what, what, what it was, he said, you can work in groups for this. So we worked in a group, and what we decided to do was, you know what, why don't you do number one, you do number two, you do three, and I'll do four. We'll meet back here tomorrow, Xerox your answers, and we'll just trade. All right? The idea of group work, for those of you who are students or or have been or will be students, is you can talk about it, but it's not like you do the answers and then share them. And, you know, you want to change at least two words so it looks like your work, you know, you know that, yeah, I see people doing this, yeah, I've done that, all right? So that's what we did. And I got a 49 out of 50 on this thing, and I was like, yeah. But I was kind of ashamed about it. But again, my first reaction was complaining, Then I was afraid that I didn't have the energy to do it, and that's what kind of set the stage for me to take a step that I knew I shouldn't have taken. Now, within a few mornings after I turned this assignment in and got my 49 out of 50, which was the best grade I had on one of the assignments, by the way, 
I was uh, starting to kind of feel this honking from God. Like, eh, eh, something's not right there. And I'm just like, oh, it's just some stupid driver trying to get my attention. It's not God. And there was one particular morning. It was probably December 8, 1989. I mean, I, I, I journaled some of this. So I was reading, reading my journal this week. I was, I was doing my devotions, my quiet time. I was reading the Bible and praying in the morning before I went to school that day. I was really, really trying to be spiritual. And I felt like I was praying in a vacuum, like nothing was happening. And then out of nowhere, I hear this verse in my head. Out of nowhere, of course. I hear this verse in my head. If I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And I thought, no, that, that can't be about the paper, is it, God? It can't be about the homework assignment. That must be Satan trying to distract me from praying today. If I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And it was just kind of like, a, you know, it's one of those kind of things you could, you could shake your head, but the salt wouldn't go away. And I finally realized it was God saying, no, I'm talking to you. If you cherish sin in your heart, I'm not going to listen to a word you're saying right now in your prayers. Because you've got to deal with this study guide number four first. And I was like, oh, come on, God. Don't be unreasonable. You know, you know Dr. McGarry was unreasonable to start with in this unreasonable assignment toward the end of the semester. So surely, God, you're a reasonable God, and you would understand why I did this. And we weren't really cheating anyway, because I actually wrote it in my own handwriting. You know, and yeah, you, we know the rationalization we get to do those things. And, that, uh, and by the time that, that more my morning prayer time was over, I was a wreck. And I went to my first class that day. It was a class on the Holy Spirit, believe it or not. And the whole class, I didn't, I didn't hear a word the professor was saying, because all I was doing was, and I still have it on my syllabus, I was doing the math, trying to figure out, if I tell Dr. McGarry I cheated, he gave me a zero on the, if he gives me a zero on the assignment, which he probably will, then what will my grade be for the class, and is that going to be enough to get my GPA where it needs to be to graduate with seminary, or do I have to come back another semester, and if I do, that means another $5,000. So I was doing the calculation of what repenting would cost me. All right. I mean, I have, the, I have the calculations on here. Like, I can't come back another semester. I, I don't have the money for that because if my, this one class was going to change some things in my GPA if I got a zero. So um, I'll finish the story later, but I did talk to Dr. McGarry that morning. And it was one of the hardest but most enjoyable experiences of my entire life. But what I want to focus on was from this, from this story was kind of the anatomy of sin and how that first there was kind of complaining in my spirit. Come on, unreasonable, Dr. McGarry. And then it kind of went to fear of, I just don't have the time or the energy to do this assignment the way it was assigned. Because I know if I do, I'll be exhausted. I can't, I can't I, I'm projecting what it's going to look like two weeks from now and I'll be wiped out. And surely God doesn't want me to be wiped out. So complaining and fear were kind of the predecessors to, ugh, all right? We're going to talk about how that's not only the pattern of my story, it's the pattern of the story of God's people, and it's the pattern of all of our stories when we make some of those choices. What we talked about last week was the times in your life where you feel stuck. And we used the analogy of uh, the children of Israel, the, the Israelites, when they had left Egypt out of slavery, they spent over a year, up to maybe two years, taking what should have been a few-week journey, and many times they were stuck 
But last week, you remember, it was a good stuck. There were times it was good stuck. There were times where God just had them sit still for a while and camp, or times where God took them way around the way than the straight way because he was preparing them to have a greater capacity to endure what was down the pike. And I talked about the fact that some of you, and sometimes me, there's times in your life you feel stuck spiritually or stuck in your marriage or stuck in other things, and it might be a really good place because maybe God wants you to be in a place of good stuck because he's preparing something, all right? And all, the, all that, from last week we talked about, all those times of God starting and stopping them and sticking them was before there was any major penalty flag of sin. If you know the story of the Exodus, God eventually, and we're going to talk about this today, God eventually forced them to wander, all right? But last week, there, there's times where there's good stuff in our lives. But this week, we're going to talk about uh, bad stuff. The times where we make choices, like cheating on homework assignments, cheating on your taxes, cheating on your wife, cheating on your husband, cheating on whatever, saying things that are harsh, whatever. We make choices, and those choices become a pattern, and the pattern becomes a bad stuck in your spiritual life. Now, uh, Numbers, the book of Numbers is where I'm going to be looking at today. The book of Numbers is a book of numbers, all right? So it's counting a lot of people in the Israelite camp, this many people from this tribe, this many from this tribe. So you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books of the Old Testament, uh, often called the Pentateuch, Penta five, the five books. And it, a lot of it outlines the journey of God's people, starting with the uh, Exodus, out of Egypt into the Promised Land. Number, the book of Numbers, where I'm going to pick up here, is when they're still... In enduring kind of this journey of good stuck. It's taken them a while to get to where the promised land is, and they're just about there, all right? And, and the passage we're going to look at today, right before the passage we look at today, um, in, in uh, Numbers chapter 12, the people start complaining a lot more, all right? See the pattern here? Complaining. You know, God, this is just kind of a long journey, and we're getting sick and tired of this manna. And we're having, like, manna burgers, manna pancakes, manna everything. That's all we have is manna. We're sick and tired of manna. Complain, complain, complain. Moses is his own sister and brother, Miriam and Aaron. Complain to Moses. Well, who do you think you are, Moses? Complain, complain, complain. And God starts to get impatient with his people. Now, we know God is patient, but in, in, our, in our understanding, it felt like he was getting, you know, he was getting kind of, because it was complaint. Here, here I, he had just freed his people from Egypt. He made water come out of rocks. He made bread come out of the sky. And complain, 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 complain. All right? And they're complaining, complaining, complaining. Now, Exodus chapter 13, they are just at the verge of crossing to the yellow dot, so to speak. The yellow dot, you know, that whole area is modern-day Israel. It's actually a bigger, the greenish area. That's the land of abundance, the land flowing with milk and honey, the promise of what God says our lives could be if we obey him and follow him out of slavery, all right? They're just about to cross over, but the only problem is that land was occupied. So uh, the Lord tells Moses, okay, I want you to pick out 12 men, one from each of the 12 tribes, and they're going to be kind of the... Uh, you know, special service, special ops kind of thing, special forces, they're going to go in as spies. They're going to spy out the land, tell us whether the people there are strong or weak, whether the land is good, maybe bring back some of the crops, because we want to know what we're getting into, because we believe God's called us to be in that place. 
So Moses then 12, chooses 12 men. They go in and they examine and they, and they figure out what, and they see incredible things. They see like, they see grapes in a, in a vineyard that uh, the cluster is so big they had to tie it to a pole and two men had to carry it back. They see incredible abundance in the land. This is going to be the place to live of all places. But they also see people there. They see giants in the land. I mean, big people, not just not literal giants, but big people, big armies. And so they come back and they give this report. All right, go to the next slide. Now, there's 12 spies. All right, here's the report they, they give to Moses, to the people. We enter the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the kind of fruit it produces. Remember the big cluster of grapes, like, wow, this is fertile land. But, 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 the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there. You see where fear is starting to come in. We know this is the kind of place and the kind of people God wants to be. And wow, look at all these promises that God's showing us already. The fruit is huge. But the people there are powerful, right? This is the 12 spies. So imagine 12, you know, uh, special forces, black ops, really strong kind of guys standing in front of the crowd, all right? And then we go from there, all right? Caleb was one of those 12 spies, he could tell from what was just said from this group of 12. Let's say the 12 were over here. and they're t- He could tell what was just said from one of, his, one of the spokesmen. The people were getting a little unsettled about this, like, whoa. And Caleb says, no, let's go at once to take the land. We can do it. We can conquer it. All right, now stop here for a second. And if the spokesman for the whole 12 said this big butt, they're kind of big people, what, what, if you're the Jewish people, what are you feeling just after that? Here's the, it's the best of the best, and they come back with a report of it. They're, they're powerful. They're kind of big people. You're starting to be kind of wondering, are we supposed to do that? Because that sounds kind of scary. And then one, Caleb, one of the 12, pipes up. Just one, initially. No, we can do it. We can do it. And you're sitting there counting, but there's 12, and the other guys say no, and Caleb's saying yes. We're talking about my life and my kids' lives. I think I need to go with the majority here. I mean, just think, if you're the Jewish people, what are you thinking? Okay, here we go. Caleb says that. Then the other ten, the ten spies, and, and actually it was Caleb and Joshua are the ones who say we can do it. And then these ten kind of core, you know, group up over here, and they're like, no, no, we can't go against them. And again, these ten guys were probably ten studly kind of guys. All right? And they're saying we can't go against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread the bad report about the land among the Israelites. They're going and saying, you know, we, can't, we can't do this. You know, Jake, we can't do this. Tell, tell your wife we can't do this. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there. Next to them, they felt like grass, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought too. All right, now you're one of the Jewish crowd of thousands. What are you thinking about whether we should take that land or not? Ten studly guys are saying, we can't do this. Two guys, Caleb and John, you again, you again, you again. What are you feeling? I mean, we often read these stories, and we always, we always place ourselves with the good, the good minority. Oh, I would have been with Caleb and Joshua. The reality is, if we're honest, there's a large part of our heart that would have been like, 
yeah, I can see what they're saying. They have a point there. We don't really want to endanger our lives, so it's kind of risky. So, I mean, I, I could see how I would have been one of the people who have been like, I don't know. So here's what happens next. Here's the people, and it says they were weeping aloud, crying all night, a great chorus of protest, all right? Now, we all are going to be the people. Let's all read this out loud. So we're the people who are raising this great chorus of protest to God, all right? Here we go, out loud and loudly. If you need to weep out loud, that's fine too, all right? But with a protesting voice, here we go. If only we had died in Egypt or even here in the wilderness. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Now, wait a minute right there. What was life like in Egypt? They were slaves. They were oppressed. They were abused. And they're saying, let's go back. Because the life we had, we at least knew what it was like, even though it was way less than abundant. We'd rather have predictable, controllable lives than a risk. All right? Then they plotted among themselves, read it out loud with me, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. You're kidding me. But again, if we're honest, we, should, we could put ourselves in there. All right, so imagine kind of the tension right now in the whole crowd. I mean, this is thousands of people. This is happening all around this miniature city in the middle of the, in the, middle of the desert, this kind of campground city. And the, the strong majority leaning is, let's go back. All right, next slide. This is just following the text. Then Joshua and Caleb, two guys among the 12 studs, pipe up. But they're still in minority here, but they're piping up here. Good for them. They're tearing their clothes. And in the biblical times, tearing your clothes was kind of a, was kind of a I need to get people to, I mean, I'm so distraught by what I'm hearing. I mean, Joshua and Caleb were torn up about this, literally. I can't believe what we're hearing. The land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It's a rich land flowing with milk and honey. That's the sense of it's abundant. All right, there's tons of abundance there. Do not rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land. All right, you see how much fear is playing a large part in their sin in this case, fear. They're afraid of the unknown, afraid of the unknown. They are only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. All right? So you're part of this vast chorus of people who have been protesting all night long and have been crying and like, we need to go back to Egypt. This is... And you're kind of siding with the ten over here. And one of the ten, you're siding, hey, yeah, we need to go back to Egypt. And then Caleb and Joshua, yeah, they're, they may be studly guys, but there's two out of the ten. And i got to watch out for my wife and kids, and they're saying this. And it's kind of a, you know, pregame speech. Let's go get them. You know, you know what the text says next? Oh my God, it's not on the screen. The people then decided they wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb. It's like, you're kidding me. But, again, don't always place yourself standing behind Caleb and Joshua because there's parts of us myself included, that I would have been like, yeah, let's, let's, let's get, let, these guys are messing things up. We want to be safe and we want to have, we don't want to be dead. We'd rather be slaves than dead. All right? We'd rather be slaves than dead. 
So they say they want to stone Joshua and Caleb. All right, now, what happens next in the passage is this conversation between God and Moses. God is not overly pleased here. And in the next couple weeks, we're going to spend a couple weeks kind of going through some of this passage. But in the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about kind of the character of God here and how do we relate to it. Because God gets really angry. And what do we do with God's anger? Because none of us want to talk about a God who can get angry. And what does his anger look like? And how, does, how do we reconcile that with a God of love? And what do we do with all that? Because, you know, we don't like angry people. Who wants an angry God? But we'll talk about what that looks like and how that fleshes out. But here's, here's how the conversation with God and Moses went. It's not going to be up on the screen. I just wanted you to see this conversation. After. God says this. This is in chapter... 14, verse 11. How long will these people treat me with contempt? Will they never believe me even after all the miraculous signs I've done among them? I will disown them and destroy them with the plague. All right, now, if that sends you in a real kind of lack of balance about God, it should. And again, we'll talk more about that in the next few weeks. But because um, that, that, it can be unsettling. God says, I'm going to destroy my own people with a plague. Then I will make you, he says this to Moses, I'll make you into a nation greater and mightier than they are. Moses replies back to God in a large, long argument, basically telling God, don't, don't, don't do that. And then he finally says, in keeping, verse 19, in keeping with your magnificent, unfailing love, please pardon the sins of these people, just as you have forgiven them ever since they left Egypt. So Moses is saying, God, please, you're a, you're a loving and a forgiving God. Please pardon the people. And again, we'll talk about the dynamics of that, because this is really a prayer. Moses is praying back to God, please. And then God says back, verse 20, I will pardon them if you have requested, but as surely as I live and as surely as the earth is filled with the Lord's glory, not one of these people will ever enter the land. They have all seen my glorious presence and the miraculous signs I've performed in Egypt and the wilderness. But again and again, they have tested me by refusing to listen to my voice. Tomorrow, you must set out for the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. I mean, God throws a big yellow penalty flag and he explains in the passage, nobody over the age of 20 is going to make it into the promised land. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and then everybody 20 and under will make it in. This is bad stuff, all right? They're wandering around for 40 years now because of a choice they made as a people to resist, and God says they aren't listening to what I'm asking them to do. They aren't obeying me. And again, let's back up a little bit to kind of We'll, we'll examine kind of how do we relate to God. What does that tell us about God's character? Because again, love and anger don't go together in our minds, but anger really is a function of love. We'll talk about that next week in a sense. And this is what then he says to the people. He tells Moses, okay, Moses, now tell the people this. So Moses tells the people, hey, um, God just threw a big penalty flag and none of you are going to see the promised land. Matter of fact, you're going to be wandering for 40 more years. And we'll talk about this next week, too. And the, the people are like, oh, okay, okay. Well, we'll do it now. <laughs> All right? And those of you who have parents know what it's like to have a kid that does that. When you finally say, here's the punishment. Oh, no, 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 no. I'll do it now. And they actually say, we'll go, we'll go to war. And they go to war the next day, and they get their rear ends kicked. Because God says, I'm not with you. I've abandoned you. Because you abandoned me. 
And again, it's not like this tit for tat. You, you abandoned me, so I'm going to abandon you. It's, 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 it's a function of his, the goodness of his character. All right? But this is what he says to them. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. Remember their fear? Their fear was, well, but if we go do this, if we go into this land, what's going to happen? Oh, they're going to devour us. We're going to die. We're going to die. This has all been a waste of our time. That was the fear that was keeping them from obedience. Because again, if you back up a little bit from disobedience, there's usually fear preceded by complaining. And so God says, the very thing you feared, if you obeyed, will now be what you have to endure because you disobeyed. Not in a punitive kind of way, but here's the statement I'll make then. And I usually don't, like, I usually don't rhyme things, but I found one this week that worked for me. All right? What you fear if you obey is what you'll get when done your way. All right, now, pretty good poetic content there, all right? What I feared about this assignment, boy, if I do this, I'm going to be exhausted. It's going to wear me out. I'm going to have no energy left. So I do it my way, and for three days before I talked to Dr. McGarry, you know what happened? I was exhausted. I was depleted of energy. The very thing I feared if I obeyed was what I, had, what I ended up walking through by choosing not to obey. Think about people, think about people, or think about your situation or my situation, times where you may be engaged in sexual sin. Because the fear of sexual sin is, I don't want to be alone. But then people who live their lives in sexual sin, they say, I feel so alone. The very thing they feared if they obeyed God was the very thing they were experiencing when they chose to disobey, take it their own way. If I say, well, I can't, I know God talks about tithing, but I really can't do that because if, if I give away money now, I'm going to be, I'm going to have a lot of tension and tightness about, the, about financial things. So I really, God should understand I can't really obey God, so I can't really give money to ministries or to the poor because if I did, I'd feel kind of this stress about money. But you know what happens? People who choose not to obey God in that, they live their lives in stress about money. Just think about that. The very fear that drives you, oh, I can't, you know, I can't talk to this person. I know I should be talking to my husband or my wife. I know I should talk to this friend about this issue. But I know, if I, I know if I talk to them, it can be a hard conversation, and it could kind of really get messy. And I don't want mess. I don't want relational mess, so I won't say it. Well, sooner or later, you're going to have relational mess anyway because all the nonverbals and all the weird stuff going on is going to create even a greater relational mess than the one you just avoided. What you fear if you obey is what you'll get when done your way. And it's not like God is kind of this master f switch flipper who says, okay, he didn't do it, now we're, you know, he didn't do that, now we're going to rain badness on him. It's, the way the, it's just the way that reality works. And the, 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 the positive spin on this is obeying God makes a whole lot of sense because he's trying to lead you to freedom. He's trying to lead you to abundance and to joy and to life 
and a financial lack of pressure into relational wholeness. He's trying to lead you to be energized and full of rest and contentment. He doesn't want you to be exhausted, alone, and poor, or at least not poor like in a fist-clutching way. He doesn't want that. So in that sense, it's sometimes fear, the fear of obedience is the very opposite of just saying, I'm going to trust you, God. Because you asked me to do this, and I'm going to trust you. So I don't know all of your stories, but I know my own story well enough to know there's issues, even right now in my life and in your life, that complaining is going on. And realize that complaining is a really good way to plow the ground for fear, because what complaining is, is I'm, I'm basically complaining, maybe not directly to God, but what I'm really saying to God is, you're not pulling through for me. I don't have enough of this, I don't have that, I don't have this, I don't have that. And we may not say it directly to God, but if you're a complaining person, you know what I'm talking about, and if you're around complaining people, you know what I'm talking about, and the reality is we're all complaining people. So if that's an issue, if you find yourself in a spirit of complainingness, Wrestle with that with God. Deal with that. Kind of unpack where the ingratitude comes from. Talk to God about it. But then if there's some clear issue where God's asking you to kind of step into obedience, you know, maybe it's step into the promised land. Maybe it's stepping out of disobedience. Maybe there's some, something you're involved in, a pattern of behavior, sexual immorality, gossip, being dishonest with money. I don't know what it is. There's some pattern that God's saying, no, I need to step into obedience. Or maybe, it's, you're, maybe you're not doing anything, there's no pattern of disobedience, but you feel like, feel like God's calling you to do something, and you're hesitating in obeying. It's not like you're in any active sin at this point, but you're hesitating in obeying because you're like, boy, but that's kind of risky. So leaving disobedience behind or stepping even toward a positive obedience, both have a lot of fear involved. And I don't know what yours is, but all of us probably have something. And if you don't have something now, it'll show up sometime soon in your life. And where you have to decide, is it worth obeying God? Um, Or am I going to let my fears and my complaining spirit control my choices and behaviors and then spend the rest of my life trying to avoid the things I fear because that's what God wanted me to avoid anyway. I just won't go his way. Now, <clears throat> this, this always feels heavy to me. I mean, it's like, do we have to talk about sin? Um, and, well, don't go to the next slide yet. I was going to go to the next slide, but the next slide is kind of an upswing, and sometimes we need to kind of stay in the downswing. I don't mean that like in a let's be heavy and let's beat ourselves up kind of way, but sometimes in order to understand the greatness of what Jesus does for us, we need to understand really what he's rescuing us from. I mean, if 400 years of slavery and wandering in the wilderness, if we're saved from that, you're like, wow, that was a big thing. But most of us think our lives working okay, and so we, yeah, we, need, a, we need a little bit of advice. We don't need saved from our lifestyle. So to some degree, understanding the fears or the complaining that's the predecessor to disobedience is really, really, really good to know because then you're able to kind of, you, you finally realize, oh, I do have some handcuffs on. I need to be set free. If you don't know you're in prison, you won't want freedom. 
You'll just think prison is normal. And some of us are living as prison is normal. Your life of being enslaved is normal, and you think you're going to make the best of what it's like to be a slave in prison. And a lot of us live our lives that way. Now, but the flip side, though, some of you are probably thinking, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm disobedient choices, so am I stuck? I mean, like, am I stuck in bad stuff the rest of my life? Because in this passage, it sure sounds like, man, if you make a bad choice, you know, God's, you know, if you made a bad choice in, in uh, NCAA brackets, you're destined to the bottom of the heap because you just made one bad choice early on. And that's where the story of the gospel changes quite a bit because in the, in the New Testament, again, we're jumping ahead, but I don't want, it's not a hopeless despair of disobedience because what the New Testament tells us, what Paul tells the people in the city of Galatia is that Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. The curse of the law is you're wandering for 40 years, you're dying out. Actually, one, the things that God, one of the things that God says in, in Numbers chapter 14 says to the people, you will drop dead in the desert. And again, back off from being upset about how God says that and just deal with the fact that that was the curse of the law. You will drop dead. But it says Christ rescued us from that. It's like Christ will say, hey, you know, you've been wandering, you don't have to wander anymore. You don't have to pay the penalty of your own sin. And the, and the people in the desert, they had to pay the penalty of their own sin. The gospel is, you don't. You don't have, because Christ rescued us from the curse. When he was hung on the cross, he took up himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed to everyone who hung on a tree. So to talk about sin without talking about this is not the gospel. So we have to talk about, we must talk about, for our own well-being and hope, we have to talk about the fact that Jesus rescues us from the curse. He rescues us from the wandering that our sinful choices have created in our lives. Whether it's small wanderings or big wanderings, and all of us are in different places where we've wandered in the desert, and sometimes you start believing, I guess this is just who I'm going to be the rest of my life because I made some bad choices, and God's probably punishing me for those bad choices, so I just have to endure that. That is not the gospel. The gospel is you can be rescued, and you are rescued and redeemed because Christ opens a way for us. I could call it a get-out-of-jail-free card if you're a monopoly freak, you know. But it's, it's not free in a sense because Christ had to do it. Christ endured the curse. He endured the punishment on our behalf, which our response should be like, why would he do that? What kind of love is that? That's incredible. That's why we do this every Sunday. We don't do this every Sunday in terms of communion. We don't do this every Sunday simply because it's some kind of religious ritual and we get X number of points if we do it. If we get enough points, we'll go to heaven after we die. That's not why we do this. We do this, in, some, in Trump's tradition, this is called the Eucharist. All right? Eucharist comes from a Greek word that means thanks. Eucharisto. All right? So we do this out of gratitude because Jesus found us in the wandering of the desert and he takes us to promise. And the, and the penalty of the 40 years of wandering is dropped. And there's a whole new way of life you can live, a whole new kind of freedom you can live, a whole new kind of joy you can have, a whole new kinds of peace and contentment, only if you go through 
the work of Jesus. And only if you say, he will be my mentor, my friend, and my redeemer. I will follow him now. Wherever he tells me to go, I will go regardless of the complaints or the fears that I have. I'm going to do it because I believe he's leaving me to freedom. All right? Here's how we do it at Exodus every week. Um, the band will come up, and they'll lead us in a few more worship songs. Um, You'll, we come up right away. We don't, we don't dismiss our rows. We don't pass the bread out. So you'll come up, and somebody will be here, and they'll offer you uh, bread, tear it off. And then, we're gonna, and then you offer you the cup and just dip it in, and then you go back to your seats. We don't, there's no rhyme or reason to how we do it. So it's kind of like organized chaos, but that's okay. That's what life is all about. And let me say this. If you're somebody right now who's thinking, yeah, I've made some bad choices. I'm living in a state of disobedience. I guess I'm not welcome up there this morning. I would say you should be the ones that run up here first. All right? Don't buy into the lie that God needs, you need to perfect your life before, before Jesus will come to you. Now, if you're stuck in disobedience and you're like, I'm stuck in disobedience and I have no plan of changing ever, then you would be wise to stay seated. And we're not going to assume that anybody who's seated is in that state because maybe you're just seated because your legs are bad and you can't walk today. I don't know. We're not going to assume that. But if that's your situation, if you're like, I'm stuck in disobedience, and frankly, I'm not planning to get out of there. I don't even want to get out of there. But if you're stuck in disobedience and you are desperate for hope, then there is a way out. There's a way to freedom. There's a way out of the desert. Then that's what the table is for. It's for all of us who realize this is my way out. It's the life of Jesus my way out. So don't, do not buy into that false theology that says you have to earn this. You can't earn this. It's, it's not something you earn. It's a provision for us who are wandering the, in the wilderness so we can get to freedom. All right? That's how we do it. Let me pray. The band will come on up, and then we'll uh, uh, take communion. Jesus, uh, um, For a lot of us, myself included, um, we don't like um, we don't like thinking too much about you on the cross. We like thinking a lot about the resurrection, and sometimes we skip there too fast. Sometimes we stay at the cross too long. But God, would you get our attention for those things in our lives that are keeping us slaves? Things that we don't even think may be issues. And would you, would you given us the picture of how much you deeply desire our freedom and our joy and how your love will lead us there if we just trust you. So would we not leave her this morning focusing on our sinfulness, but we would leave focusing on your goodness and your kindness and the freedom and the joy that you want us to be. Will we believe that you want us to be those kind of people and you'll lead us there? And Jesus, thank you um, that you open up that way of freedom, that we're not stuck in the cycle of the law anymore, but we now are in a, in a whole new opportunity, a whole new living way that you call, that we can be the kind of people that are full of joy, peace, contentment, and life. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. he's playing I forgot to mention too in the side room uh, 
There are people that are there to pray for you. They'll pray for anything. Could be related to the sermon, could not be related to the sermon, whatever. So again, don't feel like if you go back there, people are going to think you're some deep, dark sinner because we're all deep, dark sinners, all right? Anybody goes back, there's a deep, dark sinner because we're all that, all right? But it's prayer for anything. Uh, you can go in that room over there either before or after you take communion, all right?